0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: The very first time that I went to look at a gimpy gimpy plant, I sort of thought, "Well, this this is the plant." But there's only one way to find out if it's really as interesting as, and as bad as people say. And so, the very first time, maybe I stung myself intentionally. <laughs>
2: oh my
3: god! The gimpy gimpy. There's a couple of species, but they're all basically known to be extremely painful to touch, burning, stinging, sweating, lightning through your nerves and long, long long-lasting pain. And Irina just used herself as a guinea pig.
1: In actual fact, the fluid that gets injected looks, from a chemical perspective, quite similar to what you would normally find in a venom. So I would like to argue that what the plant injects is actually a venom and that venom contains
3: neurotoxins. A venomous tree. That's all we need. G'day, Anne Jones here with Off Track and two stories today roughly around a theme. Because you see, this week I'm on the tally with Catalyst. Yes! Before all the lockdown, we got to go out and try and find some of Australia's most venomous creatures. But not just for fun, because venom itself is being harnessed by scientists to make pharmaceuticals that could save your life. And that venom could come from a tree or a snake.
2: I can handle them um, in the hook for a little bit. So
3: here's a little bit of the show. And
2: Coastal Taipan is the most
3: dangerous species of snake in Australia. How long is he? 2.6
2: metres. Oh, my goodness. I can see his muscles flexing.
3: Until the development of an anti-venom, its bite meant certain
2: death. And that's not blood on the ground, by the way. That's paint from the previous homeowners.
3: (laughs) But that doesn't seem to concern medical researcher Christina Zdenek. So this is Squishy. Hello, Squishy. Is about to collect its venom. My heart is beating quite fast, and I'm not even involved. <gasps> oh my god!
2: Wow, oh, good onion squish. These has about 12 to 14 millimetre long fangs. there was a huge amount of liquid came out. Yeah.
3: Squishy and Christina also appear on today's episode of Off Track, but this time, instead of providing venom for science, Squishy is getting his ears checked. Great. The story starts far away from Squish, though, in regional Australia where a man is making sounds. Lots of them.
0: I'm Professor Damien Canduso and I'm currently the Head of School for Creative Practice at Queensland University of Technology. Prior to my academic career, I worked in the film industry mainly as a sound designer.
3: That's not one of Damien's created sounds. That's a restless fly catcher that he recorded, but the rest of these sounds, they're his.
0: My role as sound designer on film usually entails Creating sounds that don't actually exist. So, for instance, you might be working on a sci fi and you'd be designing the sound for a spaceship that, you know, there is no physical object that you can go and record. So, often you are left to think of and, and envisage what that sound would be and then go away and try and create the sound of, of that particular thing. When I'm designing sound for film, I look at the spectrum of frequencies that make up the sound range that we can hear. So we have low frequencies and sounds that are low in pitch. And in a cinema, they would be the sounds that come through subwoofers like explosions, earth tremors if there's an earthquake. The frequency range then expands up right up to ultra high frequencies and the top end. um, So if you're listening to music, things like cymbals and hi-hats, it just so happened that when I was designing these sounds for these particular films, I was spending a lot of time designing sounds in the lower frequency range. And I just started to notice a trend that when I was designing sounds with low frequencies and using subwoofers, coincidentally or not, they just happened to be brown snakes around the home those particular times. And that sort of made me wonder then You know, is there something about the low frequencies that I'm working with at that particular time that's maybe drawing snakes to the house? Which sort of contradicts, I suppose, some of the theory that I was aware of, which was you stamp your feet and make sound, snakes will actually move on and and go away. When I began work here at QUT about a year ago, I read an article that was written by some of the researchers at UQ who were working with venom, and I just thought, you know, I'll I'll take a chance and reach out to them and see if they would like to look at the behaviour of snakes based on
2: sound and frequency. Hi, my name is Christina Zdenek, and I'm a lab manager, postdoctoral researcher at the Venom Evolution Lab at the University of Queensland here in Brisbane. I own 21 snakes, 16 of which are highly venomous. What do we already know about how snakes hear? So snakes have long thought to be deaf, but it's actually a myth. People think they don't hear because they don't have external ears, but they do have a middle or internal ear. So it's different than ours. It's less complicated and seemingly less sensitive. So we know that they physically can hear, but the question becomes what do they do in response to sound?
3: And Christina recorded herself as some of the experiments on snake listening were happening.
2: OK, so you've just grabbed lower jaw. Yes. Yes, OK, great. So we've gone from one room to the next into the soundproof room at QUT. And we've got lower jar, a coastal taipan. there would be sound number two on our records. You finished all the cleaning, Lockie. Yep. Yeah. We just cleaned the floor with a ten percent bleach solution, diluted. How complicated was this to set up this experiment? Oh gosh, it it, it took months of preparation work. It, it was quite complicated, and in order to make it happen, just the room alone and. It was largely symmetrical room, but we had to have a half wall built so that we can operate in part of the room, but be safe and then have a a distinct experimental trial zone. So we did these controlled experiments where a snake was initially inside a a closed box. All right, Alan, ready to lower it? Lowering a big hutch called the snake hutch to the very same point on the ground each time for consistency across all trials. It's, we've got this pulley system that lifts it up and down directly vertically over the snake. Because we wanted to keep everything exactly the same except one variable, and that was whether they were played sound or not. And now Chris is opening the bin with the snake in it, and I'm opening the hutch. grabbing the snake with a hook and then with his hand when it's safe. We calculated there was over 1400 handling events and compared to our normal everyday lives of, you know, sort of looking after 21 snakes, that was a year's worth of snake handling squished into a few weeks period. transferring the snake from holding container to the hutch in the center of the soundproof room. Now I'm securing the hutch ready to be pulled up by the pulley system remotely. We've got a half wall, which we've just secured the door for, for security. And we've got a 30-second settling time for the snake inside the snake hatch. Sound
3: two.
2: Sound two, side one.
3: So what sort of sounds did you create to play to the snakes?
0: For our experiment, because this is a scientific experiment, we were quite rigid in the way that we created our frequencies and by that, I mean we didn't play sounds that sound sound good by any means. In fact, the what we played was essentially noise. And the noise was across a few different spectrums of frequencies. That gave us a band of frequencies that were played at equal volume. The thing is, it's sort of a bit like fishing. Because this is so under research, we didn't know or don't know what frequencies or if snakes would actually behave differently to a frequency or not. So we ended up designing an experiment around these low frequency bands. Five,
2: four, three, two, one, lift. Ah. So just started the sound and she dropped her lower jaw, which is quite interesting, a defensive pose. And now she's flicking her tongue and slightly moving around. Head raised off the ground, peering into the distance, still flicking the tongue, not making any large movements, just the forward third of her body, just sensing the environment and there's the end of the trail, 30 seconds later. Alright, so now we will have Chris secure the snake into the holding container.
3: Thanks Lucky. Some of your work over time has been played to an audience of millions on the tally and in cinemas, but this work was played to an audience of a snake. So what was that like?
0: Actually, it was uh, interesting. So the I haven't been this close to a venomous snake without, you know, a piece of glass or perspex between us. So the first few snakes that came out, I think I was probably uh, more nervous than the snakes were. I mean... It was one of the, yeah, uh, it's hard to explain. Um, I, I didn't think about it like that either because I, I've been, I've always been thinking about this question of the snake's behaviour versus, you know, sound and frequency. So I was just intrigued. Different to the cinema because, yeah, <laughs> at the cinema, of course, you want to hear oohs and ahs, you know, when, when sounds play at specific moments.
3: Maybe not oohs and ahs, but what reaction did the snakes have to the sounds that
2: were played? Well, the jury's still technically out on this one because we are currently analysing the data and so we haven't published in a scientific journal yet. But what I can tell you is that I witnessed very clear reactions to the sound from many of our snakes. Okay, so we had uh, 12 tongue flicks and no freeze, no head jerk, no cautionary. Um, Initial head direction, man?
1: towards the speaker?
2: Toward the speaker. Thank you. And movement to the left?
1: Five.
2: Five. And to the right? Fifty-five. Fifty-five centimeters. Toward the speaker? Forty. Forty. And away from the speaker? Fifty-five. Fifty-five. Beautiful. And while making the notes, she dropped a lower jaw before the sound, so that it wasn't counted for the trial. No fixation, no hisses. Beautiful. On to the next snake. Thanks, guys. And what about
3: sounds? Did the snakes make any sounds, I mean, in response to these low frequencies?
2: Some of them did, and it's a hissing sound. When they hiss, it's like all the air from inside their lungs is pushed out, and the whole body sort of, like, contracts and pushes all this air out rapidly through their mouth, and it sounds like a loud sort of... And one of them in particular, her name is Lower Jaw, and Chris would nickname her Choo Choo Train because you'd hear like. Ch-ch-ch. I think it'll be interesting too when we go to the next phase of testing wild snakes. You know, there's a whole question of are our domesticated or captive snakes a little bit less sensitive to sound because for 20 years for some of them. My, my husband, Chris, has been playing Metallica, like blasting in the herp room when he's cleaning their enclosures. You know, they, they could be quite desensitized to it, if you like, or habituated would be another way to describe it. But for ones that sort of aren't used to it, I think the reaction might be a little bit more distinct. So Chris is now grabbing the snake with a snake hook. Gently and cautiously. Just observing the snake's behavior, making sure it won't give a defensive strike at the wrong moment. Just grabbing the tail, now hook on the first third of the body and going into the holding container, which is essentially a rubbish bin with holes in the lid. It can secure with two flaps on the side. Beautiful. And now we'll switch snakes and bring the next one for the next trial. Was Squishy involved? Did Squishy get his ears tested? He absolutely did. Yes, famous uh, Squishy the Taipan. Um, he's got his own hashtag if you want to look him up hashtag Squishy the Taipan. He's 22 years old uh, this past January, and he was absolutely included. He was a little bit of an outlier in that he wasn't very responsive and we could actually tell that in some of the trials he fell asleep <laughs> and snakes don't have eyelids so people might wonder how do you know that they're asleep well you know from watching them for that many years Chris is like very astutely attuned to his subtle behaviors and it's just sort of like this complete relaxation the body just goes a bit more flat rather than like triangular the head sort of flattens out and it's just a complete relaxation of the body uh. And you can see Christina and Squishy,
3: the geriatric, napping and absolutely deadly Taipan, on Catalyst this week, on Tuesday night at 8.30 on the telly or on iView at any time after that. Now back to Irina who told us at the very start of the show that she knowingly brushed the gimpy gimpy one of the most painful plants for humans to touch.
1: I heard reports about how bad the sting actually is and I was just wondering why that is and you know where that might teach us something about how we feel pain.
3: Irina Vetta is a researcher at the Centre for Molecular Bioscience at the University of Queensland, and the stinging tree is one of her research interests.
1: So it's basically an oversized stinging nettle. They're actually related. So the European nettles are, you know, maybe half a metre to a metre tall, the Australian stinging tree that you can find particularly in southeast Queensland can grow up to 30 metres tall, so it really is much larger and I have to admit that the sting also packs a bit more of a punch. It's got relatively large leaves, heart-shaped. Normally they're at least the size of your palm, but they can get substantially larger. And they look quite cute, actually. They look a little bit fuzzy and fluffy because you've got this thin coat of hairs on top of them. It looks quite innocuous and cuddly, actually. So the leaves are covered with these basically hollow silicon needles. If you look very closely on an electron microscope, actually, you can see that the very, very tip of the needles, sort of a little bulb structure, and so the very tip of it breaks off. It sort of acts like a hypodermic needles. You basically just have liquid that's injected into your skin. Yeah, it's like a little venom delivery injection apparatus inbuilt into nature. There's actually lots of different plants that have the same or similar structures. So for example, one of the other things I'm growing at home at the moment is cucumbers. You know, they're also a bit prickly, but they just lack like the venom or the neurotoxic part. I've actually got a couple of little pot plants at home, and um, gardening is a bit of an occupational hazard, no matter how hard you try, you just can't avoid getting stung. Initially, it pretty much feels like any ordinary stinging, all you brush up against them quite lightly, and a few seconds later, you sort of get this intense burning pain. It's actually from a pain perspective quite interesting. You get all sorts of weird and wonderful sensations after that, so you get sort of shooting and sort of wave-like pain that comes and goes. You get sort of tingling, sometimes a little bit of itching. The stung area actually gets quite sweaty as well. Obviously it also gets gets quite red. The really interesting thing is with the Australian thing, trees is that the pain just lasts for so long. So I think at a minimum, I would say it lasts for hours and some of the things that I've personally had have lasted for um, a couple of weeks afterwards actually.
3: And and is that unusual in terms of the impact of plants on a mammal? Definitely. So the
1: ordinary European nettle all over Europe but also North America, if you get stung by that, which um, I have been stung a reasonable amount in my childhood, that lasts maybe half an hour or so. So this prolonged sensation that you get with the australian species is definitely very unusual part of what interested me in the plant in the first instance because i thought maybe we can understand something about what makes pain
3: become chronic oh that's interesting so it's it's not just the varied way that the pain presents but the duration that is really fascinating to you
1: definitely and i have to sadly admit an aspect that i still don't quite understand so People have said, for example, that what happens is that the stinging hairs break off and they basically get stuck in your skin. And that's the reason why the pain lasts so long. But from a biological perspective, that's actually extremely unlikely. For a number of reasons, for a start, the needles of the European nettle are really not that different. So you would expect the same mechanism to happen for other stinging plants. And then the other thing is that the bit of the needle that breaks off is actually very small and most of the time you don't really feel the stingers going into your skin so we haven't quite worked out yet exactly why it lasts so long but one hint is certainly the chemical nature of the components of the fluid in the stingers that we think contributes to why it lasts so long. Part of it is sort of from a simple pharmacological perspective to really understand how these toxins interact with our nerves and to see whether we can possibly modulate them to to develop painkillers from that we're probably a long way away from that still but it's a possibility it's quite interesting in the sense that the peptides that we have found in the gimpy gimpy venom are chemically speaking quite unique so the 3d structure of these compounds resemble molecules that you could for example find in scorpion venom or in cone snail venom for example but from a chemical perspective they're quite different so that gives us a new class or a new scaffold to work off to try and develop new painkillers perhaps there's also aspects of understanding why the pain lasts for so long and that's also understanding essentially how our pain sensing nerves and the various proteins that make them function work so that we can modulate them in an intelligent way.
3: And Do you have any hypotheses or theories on, on why or what is going on that makes the pain have a long duration? Um, so at
1: the moment, it seems that what's happening is that the peptides are very, very lipophilic. So they like to associate with cell membranes and so what I think is that they probably if you want to say they get stuck in the membrane of your nerves so in experiments for example no matter how much we rinse our cells or our tubes with water the the component they just stick Um, so we think it's probably just like physics basically essentially that the peptide just gets gets stuck Um, but um, from a biological perspective what that tells us is about how all the different signaling molecules in a nerve membrane associate with different fats and lipids. And so I think uh, that's probably one explanation, but we have not done very much work on that yet.
3: Well, though, I could imagine that finding out more about these mechanisms could really impact the way that you're delivering long-lasting drugs or absolutely it's quite exciting isn't it
1: yes it, it is actually really interesting and even though i'm biased when i say that um but yes it's quite unusual that a compound can stick around for weeks and some people even report months of effects so yeah i agree that there's definitely different avenues that we can explore um the first one would be how your nerves recycle their membranes and the proteins in the membranes i think we can get quite a lot of information from that, but then also we can use the actual chemical structure of these compounds to, for example, make longer lasting drugs. Or if we can convert these Gimpy Gimpy molecules that activate a nerve into something that blocks a nerve, you could potentially, for example, develop a really long lasting, almost like a local anesthetic.
3: Irene Avetta is with UQ, and you can hear more from the researchers working in the area of venom and its potential use in human healthcare on this week's Catalyst, hosted by me, Tuesday 8.30 on the tally or on iview thereafter. I'm Dr Anne Jones, and this is Off Track. And remember to wear your gaiters if you've got them, because next time I'll take you somewhere else.